I've had one of those weekends where I've constantly be stressed that I'm missing something, and I probably have, and if I had an appointment with you and I didn't come, <laughs> that's where I'm at. And I didn't get a reader this morning, but I like to read, so I will read our chapter. Are you ready to read? I just forgot to establish who was reading, so I'm going to do it. No, you don't have to be sorry. I'm, I'm apologizing here. Such Canadians, eh? We're apologizing back and forth. I'm sorry that you didn't tell me what I was supposed to read. We're in Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 10, and we're going to read through chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, I have seen to be good and fitting, or sorry, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life good thing, life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun nor known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. We had baptisms this morning, and you think, well, Josh will do a short one. And no, that's not the case at all. We have the, the finale of the first half of Ecclesiastes. And so it's going to take us some time to understand some of these Proverbs. 
Last time in Ecclesiastes, we looked at a similar theme in chapter 4, where we saw that because the pursuit of wealth is fueled more by envy than by actual need, the result is an endless cycle of hard work which produces no satisfaction. A life lived seeking wealth is as futile as trying to grab onto the wind, not because you could not gain wealth, but because it will never bring satisfaction. This morning, our passage expounds on the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for things, and then it contrasts this unhappy and unsatisfying business with the joy of contentment, which comes only as a gift from God. And so the chief answer, or question, sorry, that is answered here in our text is, what does blessing really look like? This first segment flips the script on wealth, where traditional wisdom says that wealth is a boon with many advantages and the product of wise living. Verses 10 through 17 give us seven examples of how the pursuit of wealth is actually self-harm. Now, even the biblical Proverbs recognize that wealth is a common result of hard and skillful work. Proverbs 12, 27 says that a diligent man will get precious wealth. In Proverbs 14.24, the crown of the wise is their wealth. There's an obvious correlation between wisdom, skillful work, knowledge, and accruing material gain. But that is where the agreement ends, and even Proverbs joins Ecclesiastes in breaking with traditional wisdom, where wealth is often sought for protection. Proverbs 18.11 says that this is an illusion. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. A wealthy person might have the means to pay their ransom, Proverbs 13, 8, but a poor man doesn't get threatened in the first place. And so despite the clear connection between wisdom and wealth in Proverbs, it also teaches, Proverbs 23, 4, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. I take the time this morning to show the agreement between Ecclesiastes and Proverbs so that you may see that though they have different concerns and different messages, there is no actual conflict in the biblical wisdom literature. They agree that though wealth is commonly accrued through wise work, though there are many exceptions, wealth is deceitful in that it promises us what it cannot deliver. In fact, it is generally harmful to those who possess it. And so, now we have in Ecclesiastes 5, seven examples of how the pursuit of wealth is actually self-harm, beginning in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And here's that word again, and because some of us are visiting this morning, I have to redefine. Vanity is uh, from the Hebrew word hevel, which actually means vapor, mist, or smoke. It is what is ethereal and fleeting. And so some translations overinterpret this as meaningless because they're right. Life lived for what is hevel is truly meaningless. If you love money, you will not be satisfied with money. If you love wealth, you will never be satisfied with your income. What a horrible, hevel existence. Wealth is a meaningless pursuit because you will never have enough. This first point echoes what we have learned from chapter 4 and is perhaps the chief chief reason 
that the pursuit of wealth is self-harm because no matter how much one accumulates, wealth cannot give meaning and fulfillment to life. And yet here we are, foolishly deceived by the false hope that we will be satisfied when we have just a little more. And so the first of seven is you'll never have enough. Pursuing wealth is self-harm because you'll never have enough. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? This and following are Proverbs, wisdom sayings, which each capture a tiny cross-section of the truth. And so because they are short and pithy, they do not provide a comprehensive teaching. They cannot. But when we string them together, they give a more complete picture. And so that's why you have Proverbs that seem to contradict one another, because they are short, pithy sayings that have an element of truth. They are fully true. They're the Word of God, but they don't give the full picture until you read them all together. And this is what's happening here. These combine together uh, to emphasize the disadvantages that sometimes come with wealth. And so it's not as though, we're going to go through seven things, it's not as though if any one of these things happens to you, you're uh, in a terrible situation, but maybe see... Maybe some of these, maybe, maybe three or four or five of these things start to describe your life and you can be convicted by the Holy Spirit. Do I love wealth? When goods increase, they increase who eat them. Is to say, uh, number two, as your means increase, so do the bills. This is another reason why pursuit of wealth is, is heavy, is because the more money you have, the, the higher the cost of living ends up being. More specifically, the proverb seems to be saying that as your wealth increases, you will attract leeches. The wealthier you are, the more family members (laughs) that you seem to have that that need a hand. Think of the the rich and famous with the entourage they attract. One statistic on professional football players found that 78% of retired players are bankrupt or in financial distress within two years of leaving the sport. I remember uh, hearing a professional fighter admitting that he had to come out of retirement to pay the bills, not only for him and his mom, but for his brother's entire family as well. Proverbs 19.4 says that wealth brings many new friends, which could be interpreted both positively, but I think here uh, negatively as in Ecclesiastes. Wealth brings lots of new friends. The main point here is that, like I said, the cost of living tends to escalate with every increase in wealth so that there is nothing left over. We get no real pleasure from the increase other than to see it pass through our hands. We get that small joy of seeing more money in the bank account, but then it's still all gone at the end of the month. Verse 12. Again, these are all Proverbs that that come together to give this seven-point introduction to the fact that pursuing wealth is self-harm. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So, wealth ruins your sleep. Now, again, this isn't everybody, but this can be one of the symptoms. To the ancient Israelite audience, the laborer, by definition, is not a wealthy landowner or a businessman, but he works day by day to put food on the table. They might not have much, but they don't have the concerns of the rich to keep them up at night. And so the point is not to promote the benefits of poverty. 
This is someone with a job and daily food. But the point is to emphasize the importance of being content with what we have rather than obsessively focusing on gaining more in the vain hopes that it will give meaning and contentment to our lives. And so the sweet sleep of the laborer is contrasted with the insomnia of the rich who suffer the indigestion of materialism, being too full of good things, or else they're kept up as they constantly think about the next business deal or the investment that might go bad, or they lie awake worrying about a recession. Worry and anxiety are the actual rewards. And so the pursuit of wealth is self-harm, number three, because you'll not sleep well. The next four points are in each of verses 13 through 17, but I want to read it together because it also forms one subunit together which is designed to draw attention to the main point of the chapter and what follows. Uh, So we'll read 13 to 17 together. You can try to catch the things yourself here. Four more points uh, of how pursuit of wealth is self-harm. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness and anger. And so verse, our number four is found in verse 13. You'll hurt yourself. <laughs> Rather than producing a benefit, hoarding wealth does not help you. It hurts you. The guarding of wealth entails much anxiety and care. Money socked away, whether in investments or bank accounts, does not bring joy or pleasure in any way. Even more, we worry that it will be lost or devalued, or else we are concerned about using it wisely. Either way, it keeps us up. Either way, because the pursuit of wealth brings no lasting good or satisfaction, the worry excess wealth brings results in a net disadvantage. Number five is in verse 14, is that you will never be truly secure. Remember uh, Proverbs 18.11, the rich man thinks his wealth is a protection, but that is a figment of his imagination. The English rendering of this verse can come across overly specific because a bad venture to us makes it sound like uh, his wealth was lost in some sort of foolish investment. Uh, But this is, in the Hebrew, not so precise. The riches are lost through some misfortune, which is intentionally vague. It's unspecific in order to give our imaginations freedom to connect it to any potential misfortunes in our own lives. So it doesn't say how he lost it. What are those things you're worried about causing you to lose everything? What are the things you're worried about that everything you've socked away is going to be lost? Think about that. It doesn't tell us how it's lost. Perhaps a real estate collapse, maybe an economic recession, or a health crisis. The point is that though the man carefully preserved his wealth, it was lost anyway due to circumstances outside of his control. This example is not an outlier. Statistically, 60% of families waste away their wealth by the end of the second generation. By the end of the third generation, 90% of families have nothing left of any money left to them by their grandparents. 
Yes, wisdom generally produces wealth, but that wealth can be lost in an instant due to any number of causes. Even the rich man who carefully hoards his wealth can fail to leave even an inheritance for his children. Let's read 15 and 16 again. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? So the sixth example of pursuit of wealth as self-harm is that you can't take it with you. If we don't lose our money in a recession or due to a health problem, or don't get robbed, we will certainly lose it at death. And so seeking meaning and fulfillment from wealth is futile. It can be lost in an instant, and death will take all of it. In words reminiscent of Job 121, Ecclesiastes points out that we will leave this world in much the same state as we entered it. Naked we come, and naked we go. You can't take it with you is the sentiment of this statement. There is no trailer hitch on a hearse. In the long run, such toil is a waste of time because you'll leave it all behind. And finally, the seventh in verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So the last point is that all in all, wealth can make you a very miserable person. Again, these are all proverbs. They don't all fit every single time, but together we get a picture of what it looks like to be one who pursues wealth. Ecclesiastes invites us then to be satisfied in what God provides us, enjoying each and every one of the simple pleasures of life, such as eating, But people who work for the unattainable goal of wealth cannot even enjoy even that. They are pictured as eating alone and blind. Trying to find satisfaction in money and stuff is meaningless. It never truly brings satisfaction, and then you die. There's no contented consumption, only dissatisfaction restlessness, frustration, affliction, and anger, which are all very understandable emotions out of a person living out the frustrating existence of chasing the wind. The next verses, uh, verse 18 20, I wrestled with how to present these verses. The biblical authors usually like to present the climax of their message in the very center of the unit, which is called a chiasm. Like bookends or a bread for a sandwich, there is repetition on either side of the main point, which are designed to draw the ancient, ancient audience's attention to it. In modern times, we're different. We like to build up to the climax, a lot closer to the end of a message. And for modern audiences, the chiastic structure feels a bit like a letdown at the end. It builds all the way up to middle, and then you still have a whole half of the message to go before you get to the main point, or after you've, sorry, gotten to the main point. And so the center of our passage this morning are three subunits where the preacher reports seeing evil. In verse 13, we've seen this. And then good, verse 18, which is this next part. And then evil once again in verse, or chapter 6, verse 1. And it's even more clear that these are to serve as one unified message because this is the only place in all of Ecclesiastes where the evil that he sees is described as a grievous evil. And then this descriptor is used both before and after the good he sees. So he sees evil, sees grievous evil, it's a vanity, he sees good. 
He sees a vanity. It's grievous evil. It's evil. So it breaks this down into pointing to this center part. And so I I tell you this. uh, You get that little uh, Bible college lesson for free. uh, So that you can identify, along with the ancient audience, verses 18 to 20 as the climax, the, the zenith, the capstone of the author's message. And to explain why we're going to look at it at the end of the message. So we'll skip ahead to the remainder of the passage, which presents yet another discouraging scenario. We've got to get at all the really discouraging stuff. I don't want to go to the good stuff and then go back to the discouraging stuff. So it, it, the next discouraging uh, scenario presents that it is possible to have all that the heart desires and yet find no joy in it. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So again, this section coming after the climax, which we've just moved to the end, echoes and intensifies the earlier message, another grievous evil common to mankind. He speaks of a man who receives wealth and possessions and honor as gifts from God. This is probably a final allusion to Solomon because this list, with the inclusion now of honor, parallels the list of things God granted to King Solomon along with wisdom because he did not request them. Because Solomon chose wisdom, God gave him wealth, possessions, and honor. And Solomon is the ultimate example in Ecclesiastes because he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet he was not satisfied with God's good gifts. He began to sin in every way and even to oppress his own people in order to attain more and more. He was insatiable in every area of desire. Despite having more than anyone else ever in human history, he did not possess the power of contentment. No one else has achieved Solomon's wealth and power, and yet most people live on the fantasy that having it all would result in satisfaction. Solomon's that perfect example. You can't really have more. He had all the power, all the wealth. You can't really put this in in today's picture of how many billions of dollars that would be. He had all of it. All the people were his slaves. All the cities were his. All the the castles, everything was his, and he had all the power and had a, a fantastic reputation for wisdom. He had it all and yet was not content Without the power to enjoy it, the contentment that can come only as a gift from God, even the wealth of Solomon was lackluster. And just in case you are still convinced that you can find satisfaction in wealth or power or influence or reputation, look again at the example we have in Solomon. And then this sets up what follows, what I call a grotesque comparison in verses 3 to 6. It expands upon this theme. It's, it's connected to this person who has all the resources we expect to grant enjoyment in life, but has not been granted the gift of contentment by God. And I call it a grotesque comparison because the author thinks of the most tragic situation that he can, a stillborn baby, and then says that in comparison, even that baby has a less tragic situation than the one who has not the gift of God for contentment. 
this comparison was probably even less appropriate then <laughs> for polite conversation in the ancient world than it is now. But the author is not trying to be polite. Ecclesiastes is brutally exposing reality throughout, and no more so than here. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives as many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Can you imagine this comparison? A miscarriage, as tragic as that is, not quite as tragic as living without the contentment that only God can give. Wealth, long life, and many children were the primary hallmarks of a life blessed by God in the ancient Near Eastern culture and in much of the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes does not deny that these could be blessings, only that they are not blessings at all without the added gift of contentment. To be able to be thankful and enjoy what you have. Nothing is truly a blessing. All the things that you thank God for and said, praise God that he gave us this. Thank God he healed us here. Thank God he provided what we wanted here. None of that is a blessing if it's not also received with the gift of contentment and satisfaction. In typical hyperbole, the author paints the picture of a person who has everything. He lacks nothing of all he desires, verse 2. A father of a hundred children, verse 3. And verse 6, even though he should live 2,000 years... Yet enjoy no good. His life is no less tragic than a miscarriage. Do not all end up in the same place. Both situations are horrid, but even so, the advantage goes to the stillborn because it lacks consciousness. The stillborn never experiences the hardship and misery of the present life. And unlike the rich who are constantly struggling in their grasp for more, at least the stillborn has rest. We admire, even envy, those who seem to have it all. But in this shocking comparison, Ecclesiastes rattles our world values by describing the life of the unsatisfied as a horrific tragedy. These verses 7 to 9 are the conclusion to the first half of Ecclesiastes. This whole first half of Ecclesiastes has repeatedly shown us that all human effort is hevel. Vanity, like trying to grasp wind. And this is perhaps best summarized in Ecclesiastes 3.14. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. Now, the conclusion to this first half is given in three more Proverbs. So we're going to break each of these down. Three final Proverbs to end the first half of Ecclesiastes. Chapter, or verse 7, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. This harkens back to the chapter 4 discussion on envy. 
The only reason humans work is to satisfy their desires, but the goal of their work is impossible to reach because their appetites are never satisfied. Thus, the author's conclusion is that it it is all hevel and wind-grasping. Verse 8, second proverb. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? In ancient writing, we should pick this up, but in ancient writing, when he asks it in this way, the answer is obvious. What, does it, what advantage has the wise man? Nothing. And so this second concluding proverb harkens back to earlier statements on wisdom in chapters 1 and 2. Remember that one of the functions of wisdom, according to both the ancient culture and proverbs, was that it shows the way to material riches. So we don't want to deny that. The Bible says wisdom produces wealth, unless there's an exception, Uh, like someone oppressing you or someone attacking your country or someone robbing you. But in general, it, it works out. Ecclesiastes does not deny this. He does, however, throw a wrench into the simplistic formula that wisdom results in true blessing. Remember, 1 Corinthians 1.26 reminds us that God did not choose many wise people to bless. Rather, He chose what is foolish to put the wise to shame. And so if you're a believer this morning, we can, you can just with me proudly proclaim, I was one of the fools that God chose to show His wisdom. The wise have no advantage in quenching the desire for material good. So what advantage has the wise over the fool? Again, this is a proverb, which means it is teaching a tiny cross-section of truth. There is much advantage in wisdom in many ways, but as the preacher contemplates wisdom as a method for gaining wealth, he notes that both the wise and the fool live a tragic life if they are never satisfied. And so the second half of the proverb carries the same message. It's a little bit more opaque. Again, though wisdom can be a means to gain wealth, there's ultimately no advantage gained. There is no advantage for a poor man in utilizing wisdom, which would teach him how to behave in order to get ahead in the world and find satisfaction in wealth. Perhaps wisdom could make them rich, but it cannot satisfy their desires. So even if a poor man figured out how to make his way in the world and get some success, in the end, he would be just as unsatisfied as the rich man. And so this section then closes with a final proverb and a seventh and final repetition of the hevel or vanity statement. So seven times it says, this is vanity and striving after wind in the first half of Ecclesiastes. This is now no longer the theme of Ecclesiastes. So the first half of the book is all about this idea of human effort as vanity and striving after wind. Verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. And to paraphrase, and I'm trying to move quickly this morning, better to see the good in what lies before us than to follow the endless wanderings of an insatiable appetite. Most commentators compare this to the contemporary proverb, a bird in hand is better than two in the bush. And so this proverb asserts that it is better to be satisfied with what one has than to be continually driven to obtain more. And so these final proverbs, all three, draw our attention back to the central statements, the climax we have held for last, the good news in Ecclesiastes 5, the good that is sandwiched between two evils. Verse 18 to 20. 
Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the good news. Ecclesiastes never invites us to bury our heads in the sand and ignore our troubles. It never tells us to to push down our desires and pretend they don't exist. Instead, it brutally exposes the pain of reality in order to point us to our desperate need for God. What does real blessing look like? It is not necessarily seen in wealth, many children, or a long and healthy life. One can have all of these things and still live a horrific tragedy of a life. God blesses people in many ways, and His people especially in Christ Jesus, but the emphasis here is that one aspect of true blessing is to be able to rightly and fully enjoy the good things of this world as a gift of God's grace recognizing that every good gift is from above, coming down from our good Heavenly Father. Even the ability to take pleasure in what we have must come from Him. And so, verse 20 ends with this wonderful anesthetic to life's harsh realities. Those who receive this gift are free from preoccupation with the pain of mortality. They are so occupied with joy of heart that they will not much remember the passing sorrows of this life. This is the joy of salvation. Remember Joseph? He says he can't even remember the hardships that were in his father's house. Horrible things happened to him, but so good had God blessed him. So much was his joy in the satisfaction of God's good things. I don't remember those bad things. Remind me again. They sold me as a slave, abused me. Okay. So occupied with joy of heart that they will not even remember the hardship. I would find this hard to take from any author, this kind of promise, that God's plan for me is such joy of heart that I won't even remember the hard times of the past. But again, Ecclesiastes has never once offered trite comforts or hollow consolations. It has never said they're there don't worry about it. It never says, well, God works everything out for good, so don't worry about it. True, but, but there's no trite comforts. It has faithfully expressed with constant and brutal honesty heartbreaking realities. And I find that this dependable veracity helps me to believe the shockingly good news that God grants the ability to enjoy our food and drink, to rejoice in our toil, and gives the power to accept our lot as creatures graciously hosted in His generous enough. Jesus invites us to look at the birds and the flowers which God cares for. We are being graciously hosted here with everything we need. We do not need to worry. And we practice self-harm 
by trying to pursue these things, to grasp them in our own hands. It's like grasping wind. You think you've got it and it's gone. But the good news here is so shocking that I don't think we could grasp it were it not surrounded by these, these brutally honest comments about the way things are. Though it is not the primary message, there are important principles here. We must adjust ourselves to the reality of the universe, the reality of God who made it. Only then is it possible to find peace of mind and joy in the midst of our lives. And so it tells us two things. First, we must recognize that good things which regularly appear around us are gifts from God. Even it's just that we have something to drink. Our food, our drink, our families, even work is a gracious gift from God. We must recognize that. Secondly, the second principle is to enjoy these gifts when they come rather than to hold out for more or keep postponing enjoyment for some later time. You know, delayed gratification is a good, wise practice. But Ecclesiastes kind of pushes back on that. Delayed for what? Enjoy the good things God gives you. Accepting the good gifts that God gives and finding delight in them is an important aspect of the trusting dependence on God for which we have been created. So we were not created to to put off uh, pleasure up until the point that we can control things and be in charge and have everything we want. There are right times to delay gratification. Don't get me wrong. Don't have time to talk about it all. Don't twist my words. <laughs> but part of dependence on God is enjoying the good things that come. Trusting Him to provide for tomorrow. Resting in His daily bread. And this stands in, in sharp contrast to a life lived in self-dependence and seeking to find fulfillment and satisfaction through our own efforts. All human efforts are heaven. What God does lasts for eternity. And so the Bible expresses these principles that we find here in Ecclesiastes elsewhere in commands, such as in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we see these principles. Elsewhere in the Bible, they are commanded to us, but the truths here in Ecclesiastes are not primarily expressed as principles to live by or commands to obey. Notice Ecclesiastes doesn't say, do this. It doesn't say that. I'm not saying you can't take these principles and apply them. You should. But these are not primarily expressed as principles to live by or commands to obey, but as reflections on the sovereignty of God. Some people receive many good things from God, chapter 6, verse 2, any measure of wealth, possessions, honor, and yet not the power to enjoy them. To others, chapter 5, 19, God gives good things along with the power to enjoy them. God sovereignly allots things to us. He chose the family you would be born into. He chose what looks skills, and intellect you would have, and He even allots the ability or inability to enjoy what He has given to us. And so the emphasis here is to understand our utter dependence on God. 
Remember, this is the conclusion to the entire section of Scripture devoted to showing that all human efforts are hevel, smoke, but whatever God does endures forever. And so if you were to go from here this morning determined to be more satisfied with what you have, you would have missed the point entirely. The message is that the ability to be satisfied must come from God. He alone grants the power to enjoy His goodness, the blessing of contentment. We must come before God with humility. We don't see the Word of God and say, I'm going to go do that so much better now, which we should. But we must recognize we can't. Only God can do that in us. And so it becomes a request rather than a boast. God, make me satisfied. Make me content. We must come before God with the humility of Proverbs 38 to 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, I ended with this because it's so funny. It begins with the declaration, verse 1 to 3, Proverbs 31 to 3. I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. (laughs) Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The author comes before God in a state of utter dependence, knowing that he lacks the ability to rightly handle either poverty or riches. And so he asks for just enough. Don't give me too much. I will fail with that. Don't give me too little. I'll fail that too. I'm too stupid to be a man. I need you, O God, to give me wisdom. I need you, O God, to give me what I need. We are compared to sheep throughout the Bible. Uh, the, The one animal that cannot feed itself the right amount. This same theme is at the heart of prayer, which asks only for daily bread. Not because we do not want more, but because more than anything, we need the provision of contentment with whatever God provides. What does blessing really look like? To be utterly dependent on the only wise one, the only good God, for the blessing of satisfaction in enough. Let's pray. Father, this is heavy stuff, hard to bear. Ecclesiastes has has found so many of my pressure points, things that make me very uncomfortable, contradictions to my worldview that make me wonder whether you should have said this or not. God, may we come to you with this humility. We're not smart enough. We haven't figured it out. Help us to submit to your word. Know its truth. You are 
not a man that you should lie. You are the truth teller. In fact, you are truth. And so, Lord, I pray that we would believe you this morning. Transform our minds. Give us new hearts, I pray. Help us to have such joy that we are distracted from the hardships. Lord, some of us here have, have rightly discerned, as Ecclesiastes does, how terrible this life is, how heavy all earthly pursuits are, and yet we have not yet understood this joy that you can give, true pleasure, acknowledging you and giving you thanks for even water to drink and, and bread to eat. And so, Lord, I pray that at each meal we would be reminded of your goodness to us, with each hug or caress, we were reminded of what you have blessed us with. With our homes that are warm. God, help us to rejoice in you, enjoy good things, and so be full of this joy of heart that you promise. God, we are convicted by your word, and, and yet it is our immediate reaction to boast in what we're going to do in response to it. But Lord, I pray that you would grant us the humility to ask you for contentment as we lack it, to ask you for satisfaction, not in the things we desire, but in you, so that we can enjoy our lot, the reality you have chosen for us, and give you praise. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.